You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, welcome to the Get Fucking Real show. I'm Lisa. It's so good to meet you. I hope to get to know you more as you listen to more episodes and possibly get connected with me through our GFR squad membership. We get together once a month and we dive into our 12 GFR commandments. Have you heard about them? Um, There's a link in the show notes and it is the roadmap for getting real and they are quite a hoot. And it's not a 12-step program. (laughs) You just check them out and you pick the one that resonates with you the most. So for example, today's guest, who I'm going to talk about here in just a minute, his favorite GFR commandment is number seven, trust yourself, trust your gut. And each commandment comes with a question like this one is, what is my intuition telling me? What does my heart say? So these 12 things are the things that in my 20 years coaching six and seven figure mission-based folks. These are the things that tripped them up, that got in their way, that kept them from doing the things they really knew that they wanted to be doing. Marketing things, sales things, growing their business things, you know, getting outside their comfort zone things, saying hard things, things. <laughs> so I think you'll enjoy the GFR commandments. If this is your first time with us, you definitely want to grab them. We talk about them, touch on them in every episode. It's kind of a nice through line and it helps you, you know, really ask yourself, am I being real? Where am I getting in my way? So I hope that you will get to know us better, join the squad, check it out. Also link in the show notes. And our guest today, whoa, when I met him at a recent conference, we got put into small groups and we did our little intro thing. And when he shared his, I just, I have, I don't think I've ever felt more awe of words that somebody was saying and they were just sitting there like still a whole person able to like communicate clearly. I I just, I was so struck immediately by his courage that I put in the chat, you need to be on my podcast. (laughs) And so this is our interview. And here at the GFR show, we have a bit of a tradition of asking you, the listeners, a question right here in the intro that is sort of a theme that the show touches on and also has you sort of immediately drop into how is this going to apply to me? So today's question is, have you ever thought 
I'm never going to recover from this. Oh, if you have ever had that thought, I am never going to recover from this. This show will change your life and will give you hope no matter what it is that you've gone through. So our guest today is a gentleman by the name of Phil Cohen. And he is an award-winning keynote and TEDx speaker and the author of Grief Continuum, a framework that empowers men struggling with grief. Now, prior to being a grief expert, for over 25 years, he helped global technology startups grow and prosper through developing their sales teams. So a big shift, y'all. And guess what? It was a GFR wormhole that was the catalyst for his shift into his new purpose. And it started with being seated across the table from the Admiral of the United States Coast Guard. As he said to Phil, something that no parent could ever prepare themselves to hear. He said, tomorrow, we'll be holding a press conference to publicly announce that the search is being called off. I'm sorry. Wow. Wow. I want you to hear him share his story. I want you to meet Perry, his son. And Perry, I'm assuming you are listening and connected to your amazing father and this interview. So hello. <laughs> and thank you for helping this episode get to the ear holes of the people that really need to hear you and your dad's story. Without further ado, I bring you Mr. Phil Cohen. Phil Cohen, you're finally here. I'm so excited. I'm super excited to be here, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. Ah, it's the GFR show, so we know this is going to be juicy. And I actually texted my husband within the last couple of hours, just a little blurb from our interview prep. And I said to him, I hope this inspires some resilience, because that is what I really believe is what you are representing. It's what you represent to me. Does that resonate with you? Totally. You know, what's crazy is that just turned 50. So I'm like right on the borderline of people that love to get tattoos versus, you know, not, maybe not getting them. Was, <laughs> so <laughs> about a year ago, I was, I live in, I live in San Diego now, Southern California. I was walking by a tattoo shop and I always had in mind like this one tattoo I wanted to get on my arm, but no one was able to ever draw it for me or the right way that I wanted. So I never got it. I walked in, I started talking to this guy, he was Australian and he was like, yeah, mate, you know, we could come up with something. And I was like, I just want you to put, I'm showing you now through my camera, the word resilience. Oh my God. Y'all know if you're watching the video, it says resilience on his wrist. Oh my gosh. In this beautiful yeah. font. So that's my that's one crazy. and only tattoo. I so. love it. It's funny. I did notice it, but it's like in the video, I think it's not only is it backwards, but it's upside down. So I, I can't tell is. what it was. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And my and and my husband is going through a job, you know, a career change. So he's in the the job hunting phase. Hopefully, by the time his airs, it's over. But um, you know, <laughs> like it's like dating. It's like just brings up all your insecurities, and you know, it's just it's such a oh, it's such a thing. And so uh, 
Yeah. So I shared with him sort of saying like, it is when we hear stories like yours, um, and I'm sure you're aware of that. It's sort of like, well, fuck, if he could, you know, get through that, then I can get through fill in the blank. Totally. And, you know, there's, you know, the fact is there's, there's, I think there's a good metaphor. I don't know if you've ever heard this one before. Stop me if you had, but the fact is that, you know, all of us experience storms, right? I mean, you're not getting through this life unscathed, but the only choice that we really have is how we respond to them. And one of my mentors helped me understand this by sharing a story with me about where he grew up and then near the Rocky mountains in Colorado. And Colorado is one of the only places in the world where both buffalo and cows can coexist. And there's really a fantastic lesson that I think can be learned by how each of these creatures respond to storms. So when the storms come, they almost come from the West and they roll towards the East and cows can sense the storm coming. And what they do is they begin to run East to get away from the storm. The problem is that if you know anything about cows, you know that they're not very fast. So... (laughs) The storm catches up to them rather quickly, and without knowing any better, they, the cows continue to try and outrun the storm. And instead of outrunning it, they run with it, and ultimately you know, maximizing the amount of time and pain and frustration that they experience from the storm. And it's been my experience, I don't know about you, but like we as humans do the same thing, right? We spend so much of our lives trying to avoid the inevitable traumas, tragedies, and transitions that come with their difficult circumstances. But what buffaloes do is quite unique to the animal kingdom. Buffaloes wait for the storm. And when the storm crosses over the crest of the mountain, they turn and they charge and run at the storm. They run through the storm. And by running through the storm, they minimize the amount of time, pain, and frustration that they experience from it. But Notice how it's the same storm, right? So I just think it's just such an excellent metaphor for all of us because although we're in different places in life, we all have storms. Yes, I love that story. I haven't heard it before and I love metaphors. It's just so vivid. It really is vivid. So we, everybody knows there's a GFR wormhole moment that is going to be revealed. And sometimes it's uh, hinted at in the episode name. Sometimes it's not. And I want to talk about who you were and what life looked like before. And, you know, you were talking about you and your brother when we were prepping for the interview and you said, like, we're sales guys. I think you said that we're sales guys, which is a vibe I totally get. Um, I've been in corporate and, and, and I've been out of corporate enough to to work with lots of sales guys and sales gals that are making the transition, you know, from corporate into entrepreneurship. They're and which is there's a huge cavern <laughs> between what it like to sell other people's shit and what is it like to sell it yourself? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Am I right? <laughs> You're 100 right, and I, it's, I feel like I'm, I'm not nearly as good at selling my own shit as I am as others. Oh, so you're not alone at all. You're not alone at all. And if you were good at it, then you probably you're not being very authentic. <laughs> that, that's the, I think that's the that's the rep. So yeah, so take us to sort of the before the life you know event that we're gonna we're gonna talk about. What did life look like then? So uh, I know you had mentioned listened to several episodes, and I know that you're you, you're Jersey girl. Is that right? I'm a Jersey girl. Yes. 
Yeah. Well, I was born and raised in New York. So I know that whole vibe and mentality. And I, you know, I when we first met, known I, that. I was feeling something. <laughs> I was feeling something. <laughs> and I'm in California. I, I didn't even tell you that I'm up the road in Orange County. So I, no I, way. Yeah. So, so we kind of have that bicoastal thing going on. Oh my gosh. I'm sure. I don't know about your experience, but I was a fish out of water for a while. <laughs> oh yes, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So, yeah, but now I've been out here as long. I've been out in California as long as I lived in New Jersey, which is kind of mind blowing to me. Like longer now. I'm more of a California girl than I am a Jersey girl now. Got it. I can't say I'm quite there yet, but I'm working on okay. it. <laughs> All right. All right. So you were in New York? Yeah, I was born and raised in New York. Um, I'm the youngest of three sons, uh, definitely probably like most of the, the babies of the family. I was a bit of a wild child, got in a lot of trouble. Um, actually, when I graduated junior high school, I remember I was called into the dean's office and he said, Phil, I want to congratulate you for having one of the worst records in the oh, history <laughs> from more junior high school. I just used to think I was just a badass, you know, I had long hair, I was into Metallica, that kind of thing. But I also kind of had a, you know, if you've read the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, kind of had a very similar experience. My father was born in the Bronx, my mother born in Brooklyn. I was raised, you know, upper middle class, uh, not rich, certainly not poor. You know, we took winter and summer vacations every year, but my dad was the kind of guy who would teach me like, you know, how to fight, you know, and, and how to be tough. And my best friend to this day, his father is an Egyptian immigrant, and he really taught me how to think, how to never take no for an answer, that there's always a way. So I kind of had that, the best of both worlds dynamic growing up. I married my high school sweetheart when in my mid-20s, we had our first and only child in January of 2001. And I would say that was probably the happiest day of my life because I knew that I always wanted to be a father. How did you know that? From, you know, friends and family and my brother to two older brothers all had kids. And, you know, I, I was just Uncle Phil, you know, I just love kids. How old were I you loved, when you became an uncle? Like 12. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But yeah. I've, I've just always loved kids. You know, I love kids. I love holding them. I love playing with them. And especially when they're younger, because it's just everything's so magical. You know, it's just such a, such a great experience. And just, I just like knew that I wanted to be a dad. That's amazing. So how many nieces and nephews do you have? I have seven nieces and nephews. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And you, and you started your unclehood when you were 12. Yeah. What a beautiful experience to have in parallel with your own adolescence, which totally. I could see how that sort of imprinted, like, I want to be a dad. Like I want to. I want to do this too. That's very cool. Told, yeah. I always knew that. That's really neat. Where did you go to college? I didn't go to college. I give my I, presumption. <laughs> I pride myself on not being presumptive, but I was great. I'm mm -hmm. glad. I'm glad that's your answer. I will never do that again. <laughs> that's no worries at all. You know, I, I think, you know, if I, if I had the choice to ever go back, I would have loved to have gone to Wharton business school, but okay. you know, at that time, you know, at that time, like I said, I was, I was a rebel. Like I just thought out, you know, I could figure this all out myself. I had, I had no idea what I wanted to do in terms of a field of study. So I likely would have chosen like some party school, you know, to go and have mm -hmm. a good time without really. No, I realizing, love it. Um, I love that you didn't go, that you, that you yeah. weren't was resonating. It wasn't your path and that your parents you know, or nobody really forced you and you did, or you didn't succumb to that. Cause uh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. So you wound up being a sales guy. How'd that happen? 
gosh, come from a, a sales family. My dad's a sales guy. My brother, uh, my brothers, both my brothers are sales guys. And just, I just felt like, you know, I was always good at it. Even I remember even being, you know, when I was in um, peewee football and we had to go out and sell candy and things like that, I would just come up with ideas and ways to sell the most, you know, it was just, it just came naturally to me. I feel like I'm, I was good at building a bond with somebody and then eventually transitioning to the sale. Um, and it was just something I, I really enjoyed and still actually, you know, still do. I mean, I, if I have to pick, if I could pick one skill that I think will serve people in their career, it would be to be good at sales, whether you're selling yourself or you're, you know, selling the widget or you're selling your own widgets. Like what a great skill to have. There's no doubt in my mind that that skill has helped me a lot in both my life and career. So I agree with you hundred percent. It's almost like I heard someone say, everybody should try and do a stand-up comic, like go and do an open mic night. Just, just not that you're doing it to become a comedian, but just to be able to try and build and learn that skill and get past it. It's because yeah, it's, it's definitely helped me in so many different ways. Yeah. My daughter is in the improv comedy sports. So it's a comedy sports team at high school in addition to drama and stuff. But I just think like improv, like now there's a really valuable life skill to have. For <laughs> like, sure. To, yeah. Sort of ebb and flow with whatever situation. And yeah, I think sales, there's, it's not far from improv. <laughs> And I think one of the biggest skills, you know, that I was able to pick up from that is just the ability. I think it comes naturally for me anyway, but the ability to just read other people and understand like, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? How are they, how are they reacting to what I'm saying? So, you know, am I going down the right road with what I'm trying to say? No, I'm not hitting the right space here. Let me try and transition to something that's going to be, you know, to get to move them. I feel like that's one skill for sure that I picked up through sales is, am I saying and doing the right thing to bring this person to where I need them to be? Yeah. And what a great, because I know a lot of people that have no clue how what they're saying is landing and they're completely unconscious, you know? So what a great skill to be connected. Um, yeah. yeah. In that way. So at some point though, you were inspired to do like a big career change. Like you were kind of, so tell, tell us about what, how, how, what happened there. Yeah. So in July of 2015, my son, who I had previously mentioned, my only child, his, he and his close friend were, were last seen leaving the Jupiter Inlet on a 19-foot fishing boat. If you've ever lived on the coast, especially in South Florida, there's these fast-moving storms that come out of nowhere. And there was a bad storm that came out of nowhere, carrying heavy rains and winds of 40 miles an hour. And uh, after learning about the storm and trying to reach both the boys on their cell phone, we weren't able to contact either of them. And the Coast Guard was notified. And one of the, and possibly the most extensive search in the history of the United States Coast Guard ensued. That search lasted seven excruciating days. The whole thing played out on social media, national news. If anybody on the East Coast that's listening to this, they would likely say, I remember that story. Neither of the boys were ever found. And exactly what happened at sea that day still remains unclear. So, that transition, you know, yeah, I did go, you know, back to work for several years and still, you know, after trying to heal and through my process of learning how to heal, I realized that I was pretty good at talking to people about, you know, sharing my story and again, me sharing my story opened up people to share their story. 
and just, I don't know, I think I'm just, I've got a very high level of empathy, you know, like I said earlier, maybe reading people and understanding and just being able to talk to them and share some of the things that I went through. And so many people, whether it was a, a week, a year, years later, would say, Phil, you know, that thing that you said, that, though, that story that you shared, I want you to know that really helped me in my own healing. And, and just about a year ago, God put on my heart that this is what I want you to do. I want you to help empower men who are struggling with grief. And it had been there for a while, but I really didn't know what to do. And I, I'm still learning as I go. I, I often say I don't, and I don't have a master's degree in psychology, but I've got a PhD in experience. So I transitioned. I quit my six-figure job as VP of sales for a global technology company to pursue a career helping mostly men heal from grief. So you said that you, it was on your heart for a while. But it wasn't until you got sound like like more of a direct message. So what does it feel like when it's on your heart for a while? Like you just sort of like wondered or had an inkling or said, oh no, I'm not qualified for that. Or what what was it like being in that in-between space? Really hard. Really, really difficult to kind of completely have to change my identity, really, even though it's who I am. But to even do something as simple as change my profile on LinkedIn from Philco and VP of sales to I empower men struggling with grief. Like that was even hard to like, people. Would yes. be like, You're what, what are you doing? Like, this is something completely new for you. And I'm still, it, it, it took a good year and a half, I think for me to really get away from one identity to really own this new identity and um, just drink, you know, a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of who are you to be able to help other people. You didn't go to school. You don't know this, or you didn't do that. But now I don't feel that way anymore. How did you get to the place that you didn't feel that, that you don't feel that way anymore? By doing it, just by doing it, by saying, okay. And just being to surrendering to the fact that this, my belief is that this is what I'm put on this planet to do is to help other people. And you know what? It's kind of like, you know, so I'm Christian by faith. And oftentimes, you know, biblically, there'll be stories of God will say, hey, I just want you to go and stand on this corner. And when you get there, then I'll tell you what to do. Uh, that's what I'm doing. I'm just following my heart. And I'm not sure where this is going to end up, you know, and what the end result is going to be for me. I just know that I'm on the right path. That must be a good feeling to know you're on the right path. I think it's something that many people wish and pray for, for their whole life. I'm sure. And I, you know, I truly believe that we're all meant to do something here in this life specific, you know, so anybody that's listening, you know, pay attention to that, you know, pay attention. If there's anything, I think that people would say, you're really good at this. And to you, it's like, nah, nothing. Probably your purpose is probably somewhere in there, you know, where you think it's just nothing for you, but other people really think you're good at it. And even my whole life, people have said, Phil, you should be, you know, you should be a counselor, you know, you should be a therapist or you should be, you know, um, a consultant of some sort, you know, just, and even through my career as VP sales and running sales teams, I've loved helping other people reach their goals. You know, it's my, it's that heart of a servant part that's in me that I knew that my purpose is in helping other people. I just didn't know where, but now I do. So 
I understand that from, again, from our talking prior in the green room, I like to call it, make it sound official, (laughs) but the chit chat before we press record was that prior to this happening with the loss of your son, you were already on your way to a career transformation. Can you tell us about like that? Because it it just, it feels like it's an interesting through line that it wasn't directly as a result necessarily. uh, I mean, it sounds like largely influenced by the loss of your son, but that there was some upheaval that was happening already in your spirit prior to that. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, I'd say several years after losing Perry, I just started feeling like I don't want to do this sales thing anymore. I still loved it and enjoyed it, but I'm like, this is not what I'm meant to do. And I kept on getting that feeling like you're meant for something bigger. You're meant for something more, but still I I didn't know what it was. So I tried my best to figure out what that was. I joined groups and workshops that help you try and figure out what is your brand? Like, what is your DNA? Like, what are you called to do? You know, and just started paying attention to all those things. So it was a lot of introspection, a lot of help from other people. And it was just something I couldn't ignore any longer. It was something that was just like, you need to stop and you go in this direction, you know? And, and it took me a long while, it took me a while, I'd say, you know, years to be able to finally do that. But I'm not sure I can say exactly, you know, that it was one specific thing. I just feel like probably people. When did you come out to California to start the podcast with your brother? Was that before losing Perry? Prior in 2008, 2009, again, I was was selling software. Um, That's what I did for a living. And then the whole economic crash happened. I don't know if you remember, you know, everything with the internet. So I got laid off, but I've always been really entrepreneurial. And, you know, when I was working for other companies, I was entrepreneurial, but I always like, yes. I need to start my own business. I need to do the, you know, my own thing. Always felt that. I've always had that in me. So I started a business called In Your Face Signs and Banners. We did mm. vehicle wraps and boat wraps and things like that. And I did that for a number of years. And after about six and a half years of doing that, I felt like you know that wasn't what I wanted to do anymore. And I think partly because it was the entrepreneurial aspect of it all that I loved. I loved the growing the business, the sales part of yes. it, you know, watching it and um, you know, coming up with ideas and the in the whole, you know, resourcefulness and innovation of you know, coming up with ideas it's to be able to sell. The challenge of it all, not so yeah. much like exactly what you were selling or or growing, but just the the challenge of getting to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I realized that, okay, number one, I'm completely colorblind. So I had no business making a living (laughs) as a graphic designer. (laughs) I mean, there there were times I remember my son and I would show up, Perry, I'd be like, what do you think about this? He's like, that's cool, but why are your palm trees orange? (laughs) I did. I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I didn't enjoy the graphic design part. I didn't enjoy the production part, watching everything print, preparing it all. And then I really didn't enjoy the installation part of it, the actual physical labor of it. I just enjoyed growing and building a business. But while I was doing that in my office, I always had podcasts playing. I loved listening to podcasts. And there was this one specifically called Entrepreneurs on Fire with John Lee Dumas he started to share how he was growing his business and how he was making a living doing this podcast. So my oldest brother uh, works for Tony Robbins um, and he is really super off the cuff, really funny. And I'm like, bro, we need to start a podcast on sales. I'm like, we could do this. And 
back then, you know, 2015, he was like, well, what's a, what's a podcast? He had no idea even what it was. I explained it to him and I'm like, I'm going to fly out there. We're going to get this thing done. I'll do everything. You just sit down with me and let me run it all. So that's what I did. I picked up and I moved to San Diego temporarily, at least so I thought at the time and started down that road of trying to do a sales podcast with my brother. Yeah, that's awesome. And that that's kind of what I was noticing from your story was that the change in your life and in your career didn't just start when you lost Perry and that it was already in progress. There was already a restlessness. There was already like you were already inspired to have your own voice and do, doing something yeah. and having your own voice about it. Totally. Crazy thing is I always pictured speaking, like whether it would be, I don't know, to you know, on a stage or on a podcast or in some way, just being able to talk to people, but with the heart of being able to help them in some way, like that is my goal, you know, is, you know, even after I did a TED talk, you know, that went live about a month ago and some of the responses and people have sent me emails and letters. And, and even at that day, I'll never forget because there was only 200 people there because they had, it held a lot more, but they would only allow 200 people. There was a woman that came up to me. Several people came up and said, great job. You know, you did a great job speaking and I love your idea and that whole thing. But this woman came up to me and she grabbed my hand in both of her hands. And she said, Phil, you know, I lost my father about a year ago. And what you just said helped me so much. She's thank you so much. And she had my hand in her hand so tight, you know, like I, like I didn't even try to pull away because I felt like she didn't want me to pull away. And she started crying and I started crying and I'm like, this is what I'm meant to do. Like the money is important, but I feel like that's just going to come with just the message that I want to share. It's right now, I just want to focus on helping other people and, and see where that takes me. And just, I know that when I, when I felt that, when I spoke to her, this is what I'm meant to do is to help other people. And right now I feel like it's through the grieving process. I love the money will come with the message I want to share. And that's a beautiful statement in and of itself, one that I am embodying more and more in my life. And coming from a sales guy, <laughs> that's a, a very transformational place to live into. Yeah. Because that's the focus, you know, sales money's the focus, right? It's, it's all about that. So it's all about I, the revenue. Yeah. Yeah. So I read a recent Wall Street Journal article where you talked about your son coming to you at a certain point in your yeah. process. Could you share that with the audience? Absolutely. So, you know, I spent years really trying to figure out, you know, what am I supposed to do? Like, I had no idea how to handle this. There's no preparation or class that you can take if you know, some kind of tragedy like this occurs. So I was curled up in a ball on the floor in a dark room crying, missing my son. And I saw my son and he said to me, dad, get up. It's okay. I'll see you when you get here. And the way that he said it was like, almost like he was annoyed with me. It was like, <laughs> all right, dad, enough already. Like enough with the groveling. He's like, it's like, go live your life, live with passion. Like you always told me to do. And I'll see you when you get here. And for me, that was such a revelation that I used to believe that I needed someone or something else to help me heal, you know, whether it be like my therapist, an authority figure, someone to give me permission to heal. And what Perry's words really showed me was that I just needed to give myself permission. You know, I needed to say, 
that this is okay because I it was years of guilt and shame and worthlessness that I brought upon myself that you know I wasn't able to protect him I wasn't able to save him and his words showed me that you know number one I know he doesn't want me to be living that way and that would probably be true of most people that who have lost someone out there you know who's listening that whoever that person might be you know I'd bet they'd probably want you to get up too you know, and not live that way. So from that, I used post-it notes. I took these little sticky notes, post-it notes, and I wrote things like I give myself permission to heal. And I stick them on my car and um, my bathroom mirror and my refrigerator. And I called them permission slips. They were my permission slips. And they reminded me every day that it's okay. It's okay for me to heal. It's okay for me to get better. It's okay for me to go and live my life and to enjoy life as opposed to just holding myself accountable. How quickly was a transformation after that experience? On a scale of one to 10, you were at a two in that moment. And then like within a week you were, I don't know, was it sort of that kind of dramatic or was it slower? No, it was pretty dramatic for me because it's a choice. It's a choice, you know, like, yes, you know, if you, God forbid, something like what happened to me happens to anybody that might be listening. There's going to be a time where you have to grieve, right? You have to go through that painful process, but it's your choice to live there or not. Right. So that for me, it was like, okay, no, I don't want to go back there to that place anymore. I don't want to live in that dark room on the floor, curled up in a ball anymore. And I still, to this day, cry because I miss him so much. I hear something or I'll see something. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that, you know, hey, are you supposed to reach acceptance and then you're supposed to be good? Grief doesn't work like that. At least it doesn't for me. It was, it was pretty transformational for me at that point, because anytime I found myself going back to those negative thoughts of, you know, you should have done this or you should have done that. It's no, it's a choice for me not to focus on those things. So I think I went from like a two to like a seven. You know, it doesn't mean I stayed in a seven, you know, I probably would slid back and forth, but that choice, that decision changed everything for me. That's amazing. Dad, I love it. Get up, dad. It's okay. I'll see you when you get here. Yeah. Uh, I can just totally hear it. It's like some teenager, like, you know, attitude kind of voice. <laughs> totally. And that's exactly <laughs> the way it was. And, you know, Perry's natural state was one of laughter and one of enthusiasm. For me, I, I know that he wouldn't want me living that way. Yeah. How long after his passing was this? Probably close to between a year and a half to two years. Okay. And mm-hmm. so, so, and this was the incident happened seven years ago. So this was a couple of years after that. And then yeah. about a year ago is when you decided like, that's it. Like I'm making it this career change official. I'm changing my LinkedIn profile. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it, the feeling was there, you know, probably a couple of years before that, like, this isn't doing it for me. This isn't fulfilling for me, you know, doing what I was doing, that I need to be doing something bigger and better. And I felt like in my spirit that I'm meant for something bigger and more. Yeah, then that it took me it took me a couple of years to actually do it. Yeah. I call it wormhole certified. Your Your wormhole certification to me is more than like you said, it's PhD. And 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 in my book, it is as valuable as studying for years and years and doing the dissertation and doing the whole thing. You know, when I heard you share at the event that we attended and we were in small groups and we did our little introductions and you shared, I was like, I have to have it on my show. Like that was like the immediate 
response because the people that are, that are on the show, they have been through, they've been through something, something, something big on whoever's judging big or small, excruciating, unfathomable. And they've come out the other side and their work is now related to it. So it was textbook you qualified, but just also because I just couldn't fathom how I would ever deal with that. And I'm sure you hear that all the time when you share that people are just like, they can't even imagine. I do. And even for months and years afterward, people would say like, how are you walking around right now? Like, how are you even here? Like I would be doing this or I'd be doing that, or I may not even be alive, you know, after going through and you know, some medical experts, you know, have, have argued that losing a child is possibly you know, the worst thing that a human being can endure. So yeah, people didn't understand at first. And I can't really say, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with my faith. You know, faith played quite a bit part in my ability to get through it. But yeah, now yeah, people often still say like, you know, how, how were you, how were you able to get through it? And, you know, I share with them how I did it. I just want to touch back to him coming to you and saying this to you. So can we play a little bit with the woo-woo-ness of that? Yeah. So prior to that, dead people came to people and spoke. Did you believe in that? No. And, and sometimes I think back and I'm, I, you know, I think, did I really see what I saw? Did I really hear what I heard? Maybe I didn't. I don't know. I, I'm not saying I saw it like I can remember vividly. It was just... It was clear in my mind, you know, I can tell you that that was the message that was sent to me is that, yeah. and it's not something I thought about before. It just came to me. Like, I just remember him being like, just enough, dad, like, all right, already. Like you <laughs> cried now, just <laughs> stop, you know? Yeah. And it sounds like you don't really care whether it was him or not. Like, it doesn't even really matter. The impact it had on you was what it was meant to have on you. For sure. For sure. And also knowing, like knowing with absolute certainty, because I know my son that he would have likely said something like that. He would have it, likely said yeah, something. Yeah, you can't, I don't know. I, I do believe, I do, you know, I have a client that's a successful medium, was a lawyer, <laughs> and I do believe in that. So that part really intrigues me. And I'm wondering, have you feel like you've heard from him since then? Yeah, I, so I, mean, I talk to Perry all the time, you know, I mean, every day. I mean, and I just watched a movie with my wife where, with Mark Wahlberg, I don't remember the name of it. Do you know the movie I'm talking about? I feel like I do. Go ahead. Keep keep sharing. I think it's going to, yeah. His son was probably close to Perry's age um, and he committed suicide. And, you know, then Mark Wahlberg says, I'm, you know, I'm going to walk across the United States to share a message about not bullying because you know, his son was gay and it was hard for him to share and he was getting bullied at school. So he finally he committed suicide. And in the beginning parts of the movie, like you see he, he and his son walking down the road together and they're having conversations. And, you know, my wife said, I bet you that's just his ghost or, you know, that's mm -hmm. not, he's not really there. So it was, it's something like that. You know, I just, I just picture him and I just picture, you know, think about what he might say or might not say. I can't say that I've, you know, physically seen him or actually have like, I definitely heard him. I just have conversations in my head. And I guess I think about the things that he would say. So that's about as far as I can really say, honestly, is that I've gone with something like that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I have beautiful. thought about doing the medium thing. I just I I've refer never you to it. my client. She's great. <laughs>
Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we can have a whole, you know, show about that, but I just, one of those profound experiences that, and when you said, you know, I'll see you when you get here, like that, where, <laughs> you know, like, I just like, that's a fascinating aspect to what he said, you know, yeah. <laughs> here's here. Oh, <laughs> you know, my, my belief can is that it was him? heaven, right. You know, that he was in heaven, you know, and that's wherever that was. And that's where I'd like to believe it is anyway. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. You uh, shared with me that Perry would have been 21 in January and that you feel like you had a breakthrough around uh, who you are in your grief and how you express. Do you mind sharing about that? Yeah, for sure. So I wound up getting remarried about three and a half years ago to an amazing woman named Diana. You know, during the milestone days during Perry's birthdays or, you know, the day that he went missing, you know, she would ask, like, how do you want to spend the day? You know, what do you want to do? And she wouldn't make suggestions or anything like that. And I would generally go to the beach, but go somewhere near the ocean and spend it alone. And I did that mostly because one, I couldn't believe that anybody would possibly understand the pain that I was going through. Um, I was also, I think maybe pride or, you know, fear of letting her see me ugly cry, you know, and, and sit there and well and talk to Perry or whatever it might be that, you know, she would think of me differently or something like that. So I would always just spend that day alone. This past January, as you just said, would have been Perry's 21st birthday. And so I decided to do something different this year and actually let her in. So we went to a local restaurant and we toasted Perry and, you know, I started crying and she started crying and And, you know, she did what I think most people should do in those situations. She didn't try to fix it. She was just being there and touching my hand and giving me hugs, crying with me. And coming home from that, I found this, you know, profound sense of peace and healing and being able to share that with her, even though I've shared maybe because I've gone to therapists, you know, I thought, hey, I should probably go see a therapist at some point, you know, because I didn't know what was going to come up later in my life. I didn't, no one taught me how to deal with this. You know, I never was able to really share with them like I shared with her and just kind of let it all go. You know, being able to just open up and finally be able to share with her, you know, I came back and I realized that I I was doing myself and her a great disservice by not sharing with her. So, you know, I think that if anybody's out there that has, you know, someone that loves them, showing interest in spending those milestone days with you and you trust them, let them in, let them in because there is a a level of healing that I was never able to experience before doing that. Amazing. Thank you for sharing that. It's so profound. And like you said, it's, you know, especially for men or people that are very much in their masculine energy, you know, there is that feeling like I, I should just deal with this myself, you know, sort of like, I don't need anyone kind of energy. What do you say? You know what I mean? There's nothing, how do you deal with it with somebody, you know, it's just like, so you feel like, okay, I want to go and spend this day and honor my son and, you know, but there's nothing that somebody could say. There's nothing I really want to say to somebody else. It's just, it's just, it is what it is, you know? And I just didn't, as you mentioned the the masculinity and I said, you know, I grew up in New York and grew up with a dad that grew up in the Bronx and I don't think I've ever seen him cry, you know? Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yes, crying was yeah, never think, really something. Yeah. Hmm. So for this like final part, 
I would love for you to share in your now work with supporting men through grief and um, your grief continuum, which we're going to play with a little in our bonus segment for the GFR squad. What is it that you feel is unique to a grief journey for men that really has you feel called to specifically support men? I think, you know, most men have no idea how to grieve. You know, this is something that we've never been taught. Do women know how to grieve? That's a good question. I think women are, for them to share, I think is easier, you know, to share how they really feel. And and I think women generally are more supportive with one another, Um, especially like, you know, I've met many men who have lost a child. And what happens is as a culture, you know, we have a tendency to gather around mom and, and I totally get why that is and support why that is. But dads normally get kind of pushed to the side a little bit when yeah. something like that happens, you know, and, and I've also found that the last person that they want to talk to is their wife about how they really feel and what's really going on because they, they feel like they need to be the rock for them. Right. So instead of, instead of opening up and sharing with them, it's more like, you know, I got you. Yeah. So I think, you know, men have, and it's also as culturally as men were like brainwashed to believe that real men don't cry, right? That we're not supposed to share emotions or seek therapy and things like that. So I think, you know, it just, it, that's a mistake. Yeah. I never really thought about the tendency for people to gravitate to supporting the woman if a child is lost versus, or the mom versus mm. the dad. Yeah. And then I imagine that then that just reinforces the male person to feel like, yeah, right. Like the society or the community reinforces the story that she's the one that needs consoling, you know, and I should be strong. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. I think if you, not that you'd ever want to, but if you ever go, if you know somebody that's lost a child and you go to a funeral you'll see that play out in 99% of them, that exact scenario. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I I so appreciate that perspective. I just, I uh, pride myself on not falling into patterns (laughs) generally of society. So I appreciate having that perspective. Thank you for that. What do you feel is the future for your work in this area? Like when you really see the pictures for like, what is meant for your purpose? What does it look like? Just in general terms, what, do you, what does it look yeah. like? As I you sit, I sit up taller in your seat. <laughs> <laughs> I see myself speaking, you know, I see myself on stage somewhere. I not, maybe it's at churches, maybe it's at uh, certain events for men and women. And like I said earlier, I don't know. I really don't, I don't know exactly what that picture looks like. I wish I had a crystal clear picture of exactly what that is so that I can know that I'm moving towards it. But, you know, in, in my mind's eye, I see myself speaking to people and whether that's through a podcast like we're doing now, or whether that's on, you know, a physical stage and just hearing it and listening and reading to the people who are appreciative of maybe one thing that I said and how that's helped change them. For me, that that's the money. That's the reward. You know, it's not so much the physical dollars, it's the changed life or the changed perspective. And that's what I'm shooting for. Yeah. It's the woman who grabbed both of your hands after your time. Yes. Yes. That's what I live for. That's what I want more of. Yeah. 
Well, I have so enjoyed this conversation. Seeing you living a full life and finding purpose in your um, experience and getting emotional just, just reinforces my belief that it all is for a purpose, even when it looks like fucking hell, mm. you know, that there is a purpose. And that brings me a lot of comfort. So thank you for getting up off the floor when your son spoke to you so that we can be here together today. Thank you so much, Lisa, for having me. It's been a pleasure. I know that you're not the same person you were before you heard Phil's story. I know I am not. And I feel like it's perfect timing for me personally, because my daughter is 16. She just started driving. And it's just the beginning of that independence phase where she's off doing stuff, you know, on her own. And oh my God, to breathe through the fear and reframe it and create, you know, just yummy feelings about her in this new phase of her adulthood. I'm just inspired by spending time with Phil and being grateful for my daughter and what we have. And I hope and trust you have maybe some gratitude too that you found through hearing his story. So his gift to our audience is a free one-on-one call with him. He calls it the game plan call. And it's for people that are interested in possibly working with him. It's a 30-minute session. It can help you understand what's happening in your grief process. He also has a lot of other gifts to share. Um, and we sort of talked about that a little bit in the a- afterwards. And so I would guide you that if you just feel like I'm supposed to talk to him, that you do, whether it's with directly with grief or something else that is a, you know, has to do with courageous change in your life. I think you will be changed having a chance to talk with him one-on-one. So the link to his calendar directly is in the show notes. And he also, guess what? (laughs) If you've been with us before, you know what I'm going to say next. He did an amazing training for our GFR squad membership group. And it's called top five things you can do with your grief. Because a lot of people are like, what do I do? What do I do? And so he covers five powerful things. He speaks about them very eloquently. And, you know, he talks about the first one in the interview, which is the decision that he made to really like, you know, shift where he was. So that's the first one, but there's four more steps And if you're a member of our GFR squad, which is only 20 bucks a month, by the way, you get all the bonus trainings from our guests and you get to hang out with me and an awesome group of people once a month on our community confession call, where we just pick one of those GFR commandments and specifically the question. And we just talk about it. And people, sometimes you don't even need to be on camera. You don't need to participate in the confession part. You can just be in the space of people speaking their truth. It's very inspiring. You can post in the chat if you want. Um, But if you like those GFR commandments and you really want to practice them, that is what the GFR squad is for. So I hope you'll check it out, gfr.life forward slash squad. Make sure you get your commandments at gfr.life forward slash 12C and take advantage of Phil's generous offer for a free game plan call. (sighs) Oh, one more thing. Subscribe to the show if you haven't, wherever you're listening. If you're listening on my website, go over to uh, your podcast listening app. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you want to listen and subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of the amazing stories. Over and out for now.